Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, you're still not currently a zombie Josh Baker, cover six new to me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode contains dead gods, teen terrors, and house horror. Let's hold up here in this cabin. We can tell each other scary stories and talk about horror movies. Number one, Begotten, 1990, directed by Edmund E. Marriage. God kills himself, Mother Earth appears from under God, she collects his seed and impregnates herself, Son of the Earth is born and abandoned, Nomads find the Son and kill him, Mother Earth revives her son, Nomads kill her and the Son. The Nomads then bury parts of their victims which grow into vegetation. Nomads are the killers. Begotten is an experimental 90s horror film without any dialogue. It was crafted to look like the film was ancient. Josh, we all know you don't dig avant-garde experimental horror movies. Why'd you watch this one? Elijah Wood posted a spooky still from it, and I wanted to see the context. Was it worth it? Hmm. I will say Begotten is not a movie for me. I couldn't follow the plot. I was able to follow that a lady jerked off a dead dude, impregnated herself, gave birth to a full-grown man-baby, abandoned the baby man, the baby man was captured by hooded figures, mom showed back up and was murdered, and then the baby man was murdered too. I didn't realize the mother resurrected the son or that the duo was chopped up and buried. Would an easy-to-follow plot have made Begotten better? No. Not really. One of the strengths of the film is that it's this strange, distorted enigma. The still of God's corpse is disturbing due to the degradation of the film. Mother Earth's murder is grotesque and unnatural since it's hard to make out what's actually happening. Due to the picture quality, you don't know what people are cutting off themselves or having cut off them. It heightens the gore and makes it nastier since it's impossible to make out what exactly is being done to the bodies on screen. Kudos to the purposely grungy picture quality. It alone sets an eerie tone and provides a unique and enthralling aesthetic. One big gripe with the presentation is that a lot of what is shown is played back at a faster speed. God going to town on his intestines would have been much creepier if it was played at regular speed with more precise hand movements. Most of the erratic movements God makes with the straight razor are silly and don't sell as him actually inflicting harm on himself. The whole suicide sequence is still unnerving, but if more time had been spent on choreographing the hand movements to complement the gore effects, the scene would have been exponentially more disturbing. 
God came off as someone that doesn't understand what part of a razor is sharp. The sound design was lacking, there is no dialogue in Begotten, but there is constant background noise like insects chirping and wind. There are sound effects added for some actions and for the sun's grunts. Most of the added sound doesn't quite match up with what's on screen. The acting isn't anything spectacular. As already mentioned, God's suicide was not executed in the best way. The sun is portrayed in an over-the-top, almost comical manner. No emotion is shown from anyone. The material isn't the easiest to work with, but actors could have added some realism with their performances. It's entirely possible that the director wanted more erratic acting, but slower methodical takes would have increased the creepiness of the film. There's not much more to say about Begotten. It's an experimental horror movie that does have its disturbing and horrifying moments, but the true dread comes more from images from the sequence of God killing himself than the movie. Unless you are really into experimental 70-minute films without dialogue or intertitles where it's hard to make out exactly what's going on, you'll definitely want to skip this movie. The only people I really recommend it to are people that are looking for a movie to study for a film class that will probably impress their professor. Everyone else should just Google the title and look at some of the creepy images that pop up from the film instead. Number 2, I Was a Teenage Zombie 1987, directed by John Elias McCollicus. A group of friends buy bad weed from a dealer named Mussolini. The friends demand a refund and kill Mussolini after he declines. They dump his body in the river. Mussolini comes back as a zombie and starts murdering and sexually assaulting people. The friends try to kill him again. One of the friends, Dan, is killed. Dan is thrown into the river so that he can come back and fight Mussolini. Dan kills Mussolini. The friends and Mussolini are the killers. Okay, okay, let me go into detail about Mussolini's first death. One of the friends named Gordy confronts Mussolini about a refund. Mussolini beats Gordy up after he ruins a new sale. Gordy gathers his friends and they go as a group to threaten Mussolini with bats. Mussolini pulls a knife on them, then slips on a banana peel. It looks like the fall killed Mussolini, so the friends decide to dump him in the river instead of calling the police or just leaving the body there. During the river dump attempt, Mussolini comes to and starts fighting for his life. Dan then beans Mussolini with the bat, which kills him. Mussolini is then dumped in the river. Now Mussolini isn't an angel before he's murdered by the friends, but the friends escalated the situation by bringing bats. The friends are killers in my eyes. I really wanted to pin the death on Lieberman, the friend that threw the banana peel on the ground, but that didn't kill Mussolini. If only Mussolini had a green shell to shoot at the ground hazard, maybe none of this would have happened. James Martin, the guy that was half the team that wrote Flesh Eating Mothers, was part of the trio that wrote I Was a Teenage Zombie. Teen Zombie is much closer to being a coherent movie, but that doesn't make it better than Mothers. Mothers is a diamond in the rough. Teen Zombie is just rough. The movie somewhat worked for me up until one of the friends named Rosencrantz bailed on his girlfriend, thus allowing her to be sexually assaulted and murdered by Mussolini. Up until this point, Teen Zombie is campy and goofy. The manner in which the girlfriend is killed is overtly heinous. It killed all the momentum and ruined the good time vibe that the beginning of the movie set up. 
Unfortunately, Rosencrantz isn't brutally murdered for his cowardice, which would have made me feel a little bit better at least. Besides that kill, which I don't feel like going into detail about, other notable kills include Lieberman having his face ripped off and Mussolini being decapitated by a machete. The gore is practical and goofy, which is fun, but it's few and far between. For the zombie makeup, Mussolini and Dan were painted random shades of green. There's no consistency. It's bad. Teen Zombie attempts comedy and some of the attempts are endearing. The pacing is abysmal. It takes about 30 minutes for a zombie to even show up. The movie would have definitely benefit from the removal of the gross sexual assault and inclusion of more kills splattered throughout instead. For the most part, the acting is passable. It's not great. There's a guy that keeps shaking down Mussolini for money whose accent comically changes every five seconds. The worst actor in the entire movie is Steve McCoy, who played Mussolini. He randomly adds S's onto words. For example, he says he's selling weeds. I was a teenage zombie misses the mark. It's not funny enough by its own merit, and it's not bad enough to be funny unintentionally. You'll probably have more fun watching any other zombie comedy you can find. I guarantee any other zombie comedy will at least have more zombies. Number 3, Twilight, 2008, directed by Katherine Hardwick. A girl named Bella has to move to Forks, Washington to live with her cop dad. She meets a boy named Edward who's a real weirdo. Edward awkwardly courts Bella after saving her life. He reveals that he's an old vampire from the Colin family. A trio of vampires that aren't Colins are killing people. One of the trio, James, wants to eat Bella. The Colins kill James to save Bella. Edward and Bella go to prom. Victoria, James's old squeeze, wants revenge. The trio of vampires that aren't Colins are the killers. I wish it was the Cohen family from the OC as vampires instead. I'm just going to ramble on about my thoughts for this one. Twilight is bad, there's no denying that, so it seems pointless for me to provide an in-depth analysis on why. I will say the acting is good enough for me. The writing is awful, so I'm not blaming the actors for being completely unbelievable. Blank is a better love story than Twilight is a joke we all know, but boy oh boy do Bella and Edward have zero chemistry. These characters don't seem to like each other at all. Why are the vampires in high school? How many times has Edward taken biology class? Is he really stupid or does he just love biology? There's an award, the Golden Onion, that one receives for being really good at identifying onion cells. Maybe he's never won it and can't rest until the Golden Onion is in his grasp. He's failed to win it for decades, but maybe this year will be different. When Bella and Edward first meet, Bella walks into biology class, where Edward is sitting at a table across the room. Bella smells so rancid that her stench floats from the doorway to the table. It's so bad, Edward tries to quit biology. The scene where Edward smells Bella for the first time is comedic gold. Damn, this girl reeks. Her stench is overpowering. Stank so bad I gotta abandon the building. I find it impossible to believe that the scene was not made purposely comedic. Big Stank Bella was the most memorable part of the movie. For a series that's supposed to be about vampires, the only similarities between actual vampires and Twilight vampires are blood eating and immortality. That's it. 
Why even include vampires in your series if you aren't going to follow any of the rules associated with vampires? The biggest, of course, being Sun Bad. I'm happy for Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson. They made bank from this. Good for them. I've liked them both in other movies. Rob's been putting in work, proving he's a great actor. I think Kristen is also good. I liked her a lot in Underwater. In Twilight, there's a vampire baseball sequence. The vampires can only play baseball during a thunderstorm because they are yoked sluggers that hit loud-ass homers every single time they swing. Was that thunder? Nope, that was me, a vampire, knocking it out of the goddamn park. If I was 108 years old, I wouldn't be hitting on a 17-year-old. Maybe that's why vampires stay in high school. You know, Matthew McConaughey. I get older and they stay the same age. Gross. Why are you vampires robbing the cradle? I think the worst things about Twilight are the editing and special effects. Scenes rarely flow together. All of the effects done to make the vampires look fast and powerful are CW level terrible. There was some wire work, but none of it was impressive. At no point did I feel invested in anything that was happening. Bella was down to be turned into a vampire, but Edward was like, nah, dog, not right now. Why? If Bella was a vampire, things would probably be a lot easier for y'all. Twilight really does make vampires incredibly lame. Wait a second, wait a second. The writing. The writing is the worst thing about Twilight. But that's not the movie maker's fault. They had a book to work with. A bad book. I mean, whoever wrote this screenplay could have turned in uh, a new Blade movie. That could have been possible. Part of me has a morbid curiosity that wants to know what happens in the other movies. I have to see how stupid the werewolves look. I won't watch the sequels anytime soon, but could see some popping up in the future. Do I recommend Twilight? Yeah. If you're looking for a movie to goof on with your friends, it is perfect for that. Number 4, Critters, 1986, directed by Stephen Herrick. A dangerous group of aliens, referred to as Critters, escape space prison and end up in rural Kansas. A bounty hunter duo follows them to Earth and destroys a bunch of establishments looking for the Critters. The Critters kill a cop and a kid from New York. They terrorize a farm family. The family kills a decent amount of the Critters. Brad, the son, finds the bounty hunters. The bounty hunters kill more Critters. Brad's sister is kidnapped. Brad and a family friend Charlie rescue her and blow up a spaceship containing the remaining critters. The bounty hunters give Brad their card and leave. Critter eggs are shown in a chicken coop. Critters are the killers. The bounty hunters blow up a bunch of places and rough up townsfolk, but nobody actually dies by their hands. Somehow? You're probably thinking to yourself, why did it take you so long to watch Critters? I'm not a big fan of Dee Wallace. She was alright in The Hills Have Eyes, but I couldn't stand her in The Howling and Red Christmas. Well, I couldn't stand anyone in Red Christmas. That's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I don't remember her performance in The Frighteners. Dee Wallace is fine as Helen, the farm mom, who's someone you'd never want to be with in a crisis situation. Helen constantly panicked at the first sign of danger and was mostly a burden to her family during the alien attack. Sure, she does end up shooting and killing one of the critters, but that was dumb luck. She blindly shot into a door hoping a critter would be on the other side. Billy Green Bush plays a somewhat believable yet 
odd reacting farm dad. He doesn't act at all that shocked to see deadly aliens. Maybe he was a space marine in his past. Scott Grimes plays the son Brad, who's always down to put his life in danger. Grimes worked. So did Nadine Vanderveld as his sister April. April doesn't do much in the movie besides make out with a mostly uninterested Billy Zane. Billy Zane has multiple fingers bitten off and his guts torn out. If only the temptress April would have let him leave before the alien arrival. The only other human character that dies is a local cop who's always hitting on Lin Shay. I'm definitely going to receive some hate for this, but I've never gotten the appeal of Lin Shay. She hasn't blown me away in any of the horror movies I've seen her in. She's okay in Critters and Dead End. If you have any favorite Lin Shay roles that'll make me see the light, please let me know. Two on-screen deaths, zero implied deaths. That's obviously not a whole lot of deaths. Critters is rated PG-13, so I wasn't expecting it to be a crazy gore fest or anything. The gore in the movie surprised me. The bitten off fingers, munched gut, and multiple other bite wounds all looked great. The best gore isn't human. Critter explosions are fantastic. It was consistently great watching the little buggers turn into goopy messes after being shot or crushed. The puppets and puppeteering are a huge strength of critters. The Chiodo brothers' work has always been excellent. I still haven't seen killer clowns from outer space, but love the clowns that were repurposed into trolls and the new original troll in Ernest Scared Stupid. Even though the effects work is a ton of fun, there are a lot of movies that scratch the same itch as Critters that do it better like Gremlins and Tremors. Still, Critters is an enjoyable puppet movie that should be checked out. The best characters are the Critters themselves. I'd like to see the little devils goof off in other locations. I'm still on the fence about whether or not I'll check out the sequels. I'll probably give the second one a chance soon and go from there. I'm hoping the Critters get more and more screen time. I feel like I have to at least watch through the third movie to see tiny baby Leo DiCaprio. Number 5, Scare Me 2020, directed by Josh Rubin. Fred goes to a remote cabin to work on his writing. There he meets a famous writer named Fanny. After a power outage, they hang out telling each other scary stories. A pizza guy named Carlo also shows up and joins in. Carlo eventually has to go back to work. Fanny decides to call it a night. Fred read Fanny's writing journal in which Fanny wrote about him being fragile. Fred then tries to kill Fanny with a fire poker, but ends up landing on it and killing himself after taking a tumble down the stairs. No one is the killer. Well, you could say clumsiness is the killer, but the stairs basically saved Fanny. Scare Me is a Shudder original. Shudder has been putting out a lot more solid content than when they originally started. The main draw of Scare Me for myself is Aya Cash. She's a great actor who I first saw in You're the Worst. You're the Worst is a solid show about two awful people trying to be a couple. Cash is starting to blow up seeing as she's now a main character in the second season of The Boys. Besides her, I was also excited to see Chris Redd, who's hilarious in Popstar, Never Stop, Never Stopping, and Deep Murder. Until I looked up the cast, I thought Fred was played by Chase Williamson, 
a guy that pops up all the time in a ton of different horror stuff like Beyond the Gates, Sequence Break, and Scare Package, but it's actually Josh Rubin, a dude who played a character in You're the Worst that I don't remember. Rubin also played a swim coach in Greener Grass. Again, I don't remember him. My memory issues aside, the main trio does a fantastic job in Scare Me. All the performances are funny and charismatic. The gimmick of Scare Me is that it's just a few people in a cabin telling stories and acting out the characters in them, with some lighting and sound effects added in. Strangely enough, it's one of the most captivating movies I've seen in weeks. This is because the acting, sound design, and camera work come together as a triforce of entertainment. It's crazy how decent storytelling paired with the right score and spooky sounds can make Aya Cash recounting a story of a creepy old grandpa anxiety-inducing. Most of the bits land and are consistently placed throughout the movie. And then we get to the abysmal ending. With this kind of premise, you expect that one of the characters will end up actually attempting to kill or straight up killing another character. Thing is, that non-twist wasn't in any way necessary for Scare Me. It's like Scare Me was doing a beautiful double bar routine, and when it came time to stick the landing, it kept spinning around predictably for way longer than necessary until it decided it was time to come back down to the mat where it broke both of its legs and face upon landing. Fragile Fred either pretending to be or being a homicidal maniac for an extra 20 minutes does absolutely nothing for Scare Me. It's boring. Your fun horror comedy does not need a bodiless extended final girl chase scene. Fred never had any chance of actually harming Fanny since she's obviously the audience favorite. Fred is presented as a pretty unlikable character, but him being the writer hack loser was fun until he transformed into a maniac trying to hack up a writer. Let me fix this ending. Carlo doesn't leave early. One more character stops by, a cartoonish-looking, mask-adorned slasher character. The slasher busts in, and everyone's scared for two seconds until the slasher says, Are y'all telling scary stories? The trio then responds, Yeah, wanna join? Cut to the outside of the cabin where it's morning, and slasher Carlo and Fanny are walking out, laughing and having a great time. Fred waves goodbye, then starts vigorously typing out a story. Credits. Boom. That's how you end Scare Me in a fun, uplifting way. As is, I still recommend Scare Me, but implore you to turn it off when Fanny says it's time for her to leave. After that point, you're just wasting your time. Up until that point, you'll be watching a captivating, unique movie where some real comedic talent is displayed. Number 6, The Selling, 2011, directed by Emily Liu. A nice real estate agent named Richard reluctantly buys a haunted house with his business partner. The house is allegedly where a sleepwalking serial killer murdered 12 people. The house is obviously haunted, so no one will buy it. Richard is possessed by an unnameable entity that possessed the other killer. The entity tries to get Richard to kill, but Richard decides to stab himself instead, which appears to defeat the entity. Everything seems fine until another real estate agent is shown to be possessed. An unnameable entity is the killer. In the past, no one is killed during the present in the selling. 
Sometimes you'll browse through streaming movie options forever, so after landing on the selling, it was decided that it was time to watch something instead of wasting more time. Surprisingly, the selling, a movie that I'm willing to bet no one has heard of, started off strong with a lot of heart. The jokes were landing, and the lead actor, Gabriel Diani, was doing a solid job as Richard. Halfway through the selling, I didn't have any real complaints. CGI was used here and there where it wasn't necessary, but it appeared to be for budgetary purposes. It's actually more likely that whoever owned the bathroom where a toilet is supposed to have brown goop exploding out of it wasn't too keen on the idea of the brown goop being real. I didn't mind the CGI stuff because the performances and humor of the selling were doing enough on their own. Unfortunately, the movie quickly ran out of steam once the whole possession plotline kicked in. The possession was funny for about a minute when the obviously no longer just Richard was trying to play things cool and pretend to be just Richard. After that, everything went downhill fast. Diani was no longer the quirky yet endearing Richard. He was now the really bad at murdering unnameable entity inside Richard's body. At this point, I had lost all interest in the story and began sleepily checking the clock every couple of minutes, hoping that the selling would quickly come to a close. The jokes stopped coming, and they just stopped coming. Endings are hard. That's what these last two movies on the podcast have shown me. I fix scare me, but it's a lot harder to stick the landing in this real estate horror comedy. One thing that might have worked is having Richard and his partner try more kooky ideas to profit off the house. Ghost tours that the ghosts would refuse to participate in, turning it into a bed and breakfast where the guests never make it to the pancakes in the morning, or some other zany yet destined to fail idea. Maybe the selling would have worked more towards the end if a different character was possessed. Richard reacting to and dealing with things to the best of his ability is the heart of the selling. Possessing his character puts him out of commission. The whole possession thing could have been passed on to his partner. Uh-oh, partner's possessed. Richard's got to deal with this demonic pickle. Before the possession, a priest is brought in to cleanse the house. This terrible segue was done to let you know that Barry Bostwick played the priest. Bostwick is a great comedic actor, but the material he had to work with wasn't the strongest. Still, I always enjoy seeing Bostwick pop up in these indie horror movies. A lot of the time he ends up being the best part, but Diani's normal not-possessed Richard was my favorite this time around. Besides Bostwick, the other big name in the movie is probably Janet Varney, who sold Richard the house and ended up possessed at the end. Another connection to You're the Worst. Yeah, she's in that. Consider checking out You're the Worst. Legend of Korra, in which Varney voices Korra, isn't bad either. Make sure you watch Avatar The Last Airbender first, though. Now that is a show. At the end of the movie, I wasn't sold on the selling. I'll keep watching obscure indie horror movies, but this is one you listeners can skip. Number 7, American Horror Story Murder House, 2011, created by Ryan Murphy. American Horror Story has been pumping out season after season after season after season after season. Oh my god, it's still going. I watched Murder House the first season as it aired and loved it. I then watched Asylum and didn't care for it gave up during the finale of Coven, and halfway through Freak Show. Whenever the topic of American Horror Story popped up, I'd always chime in that Murder House was good and everything else was bad. 
Recently, I did a rewatch of Murder House. American Horror Story has always been bad. My dumb brain remembered Murder House as a dark and gritty piece of actual horror. It's not. It's a silly soap opera mess like all the other seasons. The characters are dumb and unlikable. Ben's a dirtbag husband that cheated on his wife Vivian since she wouldn't put out after a miscarriage. Vivian is a fool who keeps giving Ben chances. Violet, the only likable part of that family, hates her parents. I will say this, Murder House has one of the best reveals of all time. Watching Murder House live and finding out that Violet actually was a ghost that successfully committed suicide episodes ago was incredible. I think that alone is a big reason why I was always in Murder House's corner whenever American Horror Story was brought up. I remember everyone going gaga over Jessica Lange and myself enjoying her in the first season, then being annoyed when she was shoehorned into similar roles season after season. I'm not a big fan of actors that were in the first season of a show playing completely different characters in a second, even when the second season isn't a continuation, unless the new character is completely different and the actor is incredible, I just end up seeing the person more and more as the seasons progress. That's not Constance or The Nun or The Witch. That's Jessica Lange. Welp, all I really wanted to say is that American Horror Story has always been cheesy junk food television. Sometimes it's good cheese garbage like Cheez-Its, but it's mostly bland or bad like the weird goldfish flavors. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer, 81, Dead Gods, Teen Terrors, and House Horror. If you haven't seen it already, Pumpkin Harvest 3 is out now. It includes the best and worst movies from the podcast this past year. If you dug what you heard, consider leaving a rating and or review on iTunes. Blank is the Killer 82 will be out on October 18th. Until then, if I die, please... Do not throw me in the river. I don't want to be covered in different shades of green paint for the rest of eternity.